It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 175, The Founding of Rome and the Birth of the Prophets Isaiah and Micah. As a lover of history, I cannot help but find myself drawn to the Roman Empire, the story of its rise to prominence in the world and its great men, the age of the Republic and the struggles of the emperors and their territorial expansions are really awesome. I visited Rome in the year 2000, and I read as much as I could beforehand as I walked the streets and the old Roman roads and the the area of the Forum. It was like I was walking and hearing the stories of old. I tried to imagine the great men of the Republic arguing and setting policy for the future of the world. It's a marvelous age, and no matter who tells the story of Rome, you get a different perspective of the city and the people who influenced the world so greatly in their time and age. Well, it all begins here, during Israel's height and rise. And with our historic focus, there's some really cool parallels, which we'll cover in a bit. Even as the Olympic Games was founded a short while back, we had the birth of the city of Rome in our midst. The date of 753 BC is the most commonly recognized date for the founding of Rome. With the Roman Empire as the backdrop for the entirety of the New Testament, We cannot help but discuss the founding of Rome in this episode and the significance of the date of its birth or founding and parallel the Romans with the world as a whole and the other messianic events occurring during this time frame. The traditional founders of Rome were twins named Romulus and Remus. Before Rome was even a hamlet, they were born to a woman named Re Silvia. Now, Re Silvia's father was a king of a nearby town called Alba Longa. His name was Numitor, and he was displaced from power by his brother Amaluus. Now, Ray Silvia was probably told to never marry because Amaluus didn't want any other royal bloodlines to contend with his. So he made Ray Silvia a vestal virgin, which is a form of a nun to be dedicated to some local god. Now, Ray supposedly went to her sacred grove and ended up conceiving twins with the god Mars. And that's the god of war, according to the Romans. Isn't that crazy? But this is common in this age. Hereditary was important, and if you could place your family line into the line of gods, you have more on your side and credit with the people. And that's how the story goes, of course. Another point is that this scene puts the twins as part of the Greek, from the Greek god Mars, and the Latin nobility. Also, let's not forget the god Mars was the god of war. And those Romans, they'll love their war. So Ray has her twins, and someone has a dream that the twins will overthrow the king, and the king orders the death of the twins. 
Instead of being killed, the twins were abandoned on the bank of the Tiber River to die. This is where the story gets a bit weird. According to the legend, they were saved by the god Tiberius, which would be the god of the Tiber River. Part of the legend states the twins were suckled or nursed by a she-wolf in a cave, and you can find statues in Roman museums celebrating the nursing boys from this wolf. And of the artwork for this episode will also have um, this scene depicted in a statue. Eventually, they were adopted by Festulius, a shepherd. They grew up tending flocks, unaware of their true identities. As they became adults, they couldn't help but get involved in the world around them. In a dramatic scene, Remus gets captured and brought to Alba Longa, where everyone realizes his identity. His brother, learning that he was nobility along the way, rescues his brother and leads others to depose the king. Amelius is killed, and Numitor is reinstated as king. I mean, isn't this the making of a great adventure story? But it doesn't end here. Next, the twins set out to build a city of their own. Two twins decided to found a city in the place of their raising. The twins disputed which hill to found the city, but Romulus won over Remus by picking the Palatine Hill. In the end, their dispute grew into armed conflict until Romulus killed his brother Remus. Romulus then went on to found the city of Rome, after himself, its institutions, government, military, and religious traditions. He reigned for many years as its first king. So that's the legend. We can get a lot from this foundation myth of sorts. With the foundational legend, we see Rome's future dependence on their gods, their superstition, their dedication to war, creativeness, and adventurous spirit about them, together with the nasty, ambitious fratricide that would curse those of absolute power. So where does this classic tale of mythology meet history? Well, there's a confirmed city site around this time period in one of the hills of Rome. The Cain and Abel-like story probably did happen and shows us a horrible fratricide that would be the generational curse of sorts that flows through the veins of the Roman Empire. There is ancient evidence of Romulus's name in the ruins of the old city. The date of the city founding is generally accurate. The other details, well, not so. Regarding that fratricidal potential curse that started at the beginning like Cain and Abel, this violence will reign in Rome, but on the reverse side, the city of Rome tames their inner fratricide with the forming of the Republic in 509 BC in about 250 years, having two ruling councils with only one year of power with multiple ruling classes all balancing each other to ensure no one man has enough power to control everyone, to never have a king again. This will be one of those crowning achievements of Rome that they'll found this government that holds absolute power in check. And with it, they have this incredible growth and prosperity that overtakes them. The Roman Republic more or less conquers the Mediterranean. It's not the emperors. It's not the Caesars. It's the balanced and powerful and wealthy Republic, which succeeds where the monarchy and the emperors failed. When the Republic ends, prosperity declines, and the fratricide begins anew in the age of the emperors. Isn't the Romulus and Remus story smell of Cain and Abel and the fall of man? 
I like to tell history stories to my children, and one of them often asks the question about wars in history. Why can't they just slow down and talk about it? Why are they fighting over? And at the heart of the matter is the fall of man and the sinfulness of man. Cain killed Abel, and man fell to incredible lows prior to the flood. Romulus killed Remus, and fratricide nearly destroyed Rome a hundred times over. It gets nasty. Sin and power and greed and violence are horrible, but it's the way too common story of man. But when we bring in the power of God through biblical history, we get a bigger picture. See, God needed an empire that would be known for engineering genius. A violent and brutal classical empire with history and traditions and structure designed by a republic with basic freedom and structures, but now governed by one man, Augustus Caesar, at the time of the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. Rome will do this and unify the world in the time of Jesus and build the greatest road network the world had ever seen and have relative peace within its borders to travel and to spread the good news. And there will be plenty of unity amongst the nations and empires with the limited number of spoken languages. Unity at a cost, but it was unity. And Rome would be the nation in the time of Jesus that controlled all the Mediterranean, and a guy named Paul could literally travel from Jerusalem to Spain under his own free will and preach the gospel to anyone who would listen. His citizenship as a Roman citizen was enough to grant him protection. In many ways, we can see the Roman Empire at its infancy as a picture of the story of man compared to Cain and Abel. Sons of God, men of royalty with a profound destiny in front of them, ready to change the world. But what we have here is the beginning of God's great canvas. God is setting up the world for the arrival of his son. He looks at Rome and what it will become, and he probably smiles because he was a part of it. No matter what historians think today, I cannot help but think this because we have the birth of two extremely important men in world history occurring at the same time. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, let's talk about these important men. What fascinates me the most about this time period is the birth of two men, two messianic prophets happens at the same time as the birth of Rome. The backdrop is birthed, and the prophets who detail the Messiah are birthed as well. The first of these men, the prophet Isaiah, is considered the greatest of the messianic prophets. As God looked down at the founding of the empire, that would be the backdrop of the greatest story ever told. He sees two baby boys being born in Israel, one in the city, one in the country. These babies will go on to issue some of the greatest prophecies about Jesus himself the world will ever hear. Let's start with Isaiah. Around this time frame, the prophet Isaiah was born. Isaiah will go on to write or prophesy or be the main character or writer of the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah. There are many views of this book and who actually wrote it and put it together, but it is clearly about Isaiah the prophet. The first 39 chapters of the book have one feel, but the remainder is purely messianic in nature. Here are some highlights of the longest book in the Bible. Isaiah covers the exile, the destruction of Jerusalem, Cyrus the Great in wonderful color, Jesus' death in great detail, and the power and purpose of the cross, the end of the northern Israel as a nation, the destruction of Sennacherib's army around Jerusalem, and the end of Assyria as an empire, and many prophecies about the end of the world. 
What he sees and understands is breathtaking. It's hard to imagine how he contained himself, but that's probably what makes him such a bold prophet. He'll go on to become one of Israel's greatest prophets, and some have Isaiah prophesying over 64 years. He's a most remarkable prophet by most standards, and his longevity is astounding, having lived through the reign of at least four kings in Judah, and he is born as royalty in Judah's family line. According to the Hebrew Talmud, he suffered martyrdom by being sawed in two under the orders of Manasseh. According to rabbinical literature, Isaiah was the maternal grandfather of Manasseh, an interesting, killed by his hedonistic grandson with his death, potentially referred to by the Apostle Paul in the book of Hebrews. I like what Gregory of Nessia said about Isaiah. Here's a word-for-word write-up from the internet. Forgive my direct quotage, but Gregory believed that the prophet Isaiah knew more perfectly than all the others the mystery of the religion of the gospel. Jerome said these words. He also lauds prophet Isaiah, saying he was more of an evangelist than a prophet because he described all the mysteries of the church of Christ so vividly that you would assume he was not prophesying about the future, but rather was composing a history of the past. Of specific note are the songs of the suffering servant, which Christians say are a direct prophetic revelation of the nature, purpose, and detail of the death of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 40 takes a turn in the book of Isaiah. He goes from judgment prophet to almost like a pre-witness of the Christ. It's amazing his words. So much the book was focused on his encounter with God and the judgment of the nations, but all of a sudden Isaiah starts talking something different. A man, a single man, in his transgressions, paralleling it to the redemption of the nation. What's going on? What's going on is God is setting the tone. He's got the empire to arise. He's got the plan laid before us all. He's setting the stage for the greatest story ever told. It's amazing, the story of Isaiah. But we can't get ahead of ourselves. He's just a baby right now, child of great promise, to be educated as royalty in the house of Judah, who will soon receive his calling. And if this isn't enough, Micah, another prophet, this time he's born in the country. He's probably poor compared to Isaiah, but his words have an incredible precision to them. Just a baby right now, but his prophecy will become the GPS coordinates for the Magi from the East to bring gifts to Jesus. God, in his all-knowing way, is setting the stage for the greatest story ever told. We've got the backdrop, the world empire to hold the drama, which forges the characters like Pontius Pilate in the fire, and we've got prophecies of the details of the one to come. We've got our main character, our redeemer, the center of the world, the son of God himself, and details of his coming spoken by prophets who went before him. We end with the fictional write-up on the prophecy of Micah. Micah is standing before the city gate and prophesying to the people. He ends with the words that propelled the Magi to end up at Bethlehem. We end this episode with a fictional write-up that sets the tone of these messianic prophets. Here's something I put together related to Micah's greatest moment. This happens 30 or 40 years from now, but it sets the tone for where we are headed as prophets and kings again collide this age of spiritual power versus physical power. And the stage is being set for the Ancient of Days to return in great power and redeem the world. Micah stood at the gate to the city. 
All the elders and leaders of the city had gathered to hear his prophecy. Though the village was incurring a spiritual decline, they still respected the Lord's prophets and would allow them to speak. He stood on an elevated platform where judges and leaders normally stood. Though he never spoke to them directly, scribes were prepared to dictate his words. It was noted the new king Manasseh, as of a few years ago, had sent his own observer and scribe. The king's special envoy looked very suspicious at Micah as he prepared to speak. Micah spoke with great authority and tone and power. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Micah paused and breathed deeply as a swift breeze blew through the city, causing the scribes to add weights to keep their scrolls and writing devices from blowing in the wind. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go up from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Micah continued to speak of the mountain of the Lord, God's presence. And as he spoke of the upcoming Babylonian judgment, a silence befell the city, preceding a grating, heart-wrenching feeling of the fear of the Lord. The judgment was decreed in graphic detail, and he proceeded to speak of the hope to come and the glorious things and end to come, earthly judgment, and that concluded with peace and prosperity and an unexpected message of grace that lifted the soul. He paused and breathed deeply. He drank from a glass of water and pointed to the direction of Jerusalem as a fear filled the city. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with the rod. The silence and fear rose to a heavy level and instantly left, as a special grace fell on the city. The grace was joy and love, as he turned and angled himself towards the country, towards the small village of Bethlehem. He pointed and shouted these words, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the tribes, out of you will come for me one will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com, share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.